The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, everybody. You've tuned into The Glenn Show. I'm Glenn Lowry, and I'm with John McWhorter. Hey, John, how you doing? I'm jet-lagged, Glenn, but other than that, I'm fine and in, in fairly coherent spirits. Let me introduce us, and then we can talk about your fatigue. Uh, I teach at Brown University. I'm a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and I'm the host of The Glenn Show. John McWhorter is my par- conversation partner every other week here at The Glenn Show. He teaches at Columbia. He writes for The New York Times. And uh, what are we talking about today, John, is besides you having uh, jet lag, are we go- you going to tell us about uh, what you were doing and why? No, I was in California. <laughs> okay. The um, <laughs> there are all sorts of things we can talk about. Um, what's 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 been in the news that's racial lately? Um, well, for example, um, we should edit this part out. Um, what are we going to kick it off with? Uh, we can leave it in and take it out. I mean, uh, um, I'm for leaving it in. Actually, uh, folks out there, we're just trying to figure out what we're doing here. And I, I haven't had sleep, and so my brain isn't popping off, but I'll, I'll follow you where you go. Well, okay. Plagiarism needs at least more than one word. That was oh, a yeah. piece that you had in the New York Times last week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, talk about the Claudine Gay situation and whatnot. And, uh, you know, uh, boilerplate plagiarism where you didn't feel you were lazy and you didn't feel like writing the thing yourself and you knew that there was somebody who had basically said the same thing. So you kind of, you know, you're introducing something, you're summarizing something and you just kind of lift it out. Uh, You change a word here or there, but, you know, in effect, you're borrowing from somebody else is one thing. And a kid comes in with an idea for a thesis and shares that idea with you. And then you take the praises for that and you base a paper on it and you publish it in a journal. That's, you know, that's stealing that kid's idea. That's another kind of plagiarism. And we, we want to distinguish between those two things because why? Because you're bent on defending Claudine Gay no matter what? No, it's, it's not <laughs> at all. <laughs> I know it, it looks like it. Um, <laughs> it's that I think we all know that those two things are different. I think we all know that those two things are different in terms of their ethical egregiousness. And as far as Claudine Gay goes... I maintain that she needed to resign for because of the, the, the formality of the issue. You don't resign because you're a horrible person. You resign because things are just a really bad look. And you don't get a pass on it just because you have brown skin. But I'm sure that she will go to her grave saying, all I did was do some quotation of boilerplate. It wasn't really any big deal. I'm sure she's saying, saying that to her husband over dinner. And she's not crazy. In that Now, as you would want to stress more than me, there were other reasons that she shouldn't have been in the position as well. And I, I agree with you. I, it's very hard for me to say it too often. But yes, you're right. She, it's, 
it's kind of convenient that all that stuff happened because somebody with that thin a publishing record shouldn't have been there anyway. But after all that dust has settled, and it has, I just couldn't help thinking there are two kinds of plagiarism, and we all know it. And as we move forward, I think we need to start distinguishing because the way we talk about this is as if she was putting ideas that weren't hers out there, which I think all of us would find repulsive. And that's not what she did. She just lifted boilerplate without citing it. Okay, I won't repeat my position, uh, which is, (laughs) I'm about to repeat it, that the habit of mind, which her many, many dozens of instances of of boilerplate plagiarism reveals, uh, shows a shallow person uh, unfit for leadership of an august institution uh, such as Harvard. And then the question becomes, how did she get there? And that then indicts a whole system, which I've been willing to call corrupt. But let me ask you about that, not about Claudine Gay. Whether the diminution of DEI, the brand, the DEI brand has taken a hit, would you agree with that? I mean, Christopher Rufo, need I say more? Glenn, I think, unfortunately, that there is a problem with language here that um, I'm thinking about writing about, although I feel like I've written about it already with the whole issue of what CRT is. But a lot of people think DEI is just kind of the equivalent of taking race into account as a thumb on the scale and affirmative action. A lot of people think DEI is recruitment efforts, making sure that you recruit enough black people, making sure that you don't have no black people on a force or within a student body. They think that it's these goodly things. They don't realize what actually goes on behind the scenes. And so for the quote-unquote good people, Rufo is the devil because he doesn't want there to be diversity, equity, or inclusion. When frankly, if you're really looking around, and even if you're not looking around that much, you know that by diversity, what people mean is not multifariousness, but black. By equity, what people mean is not equality, but um, quotas. And by inclusion, what they mean is changing what we think of as standards and qualifications in order to include. Now, some people will hear me say that and say that it's just bullshit and I shouldn't be listened to. But frankly, I throw that right back at you. That is exactly what D, E, and I mean today. And you can be a very reasonable person and disagree. But you have to know that, Glenn, to see DEI as having taken a hit. You know? Most I, people, I really didn't. I didn't understand your uh, conclusion. My point being, a great many people who look at someone like Claudine Gay in that position and cheer don't understand how DEI actually works behind the scenes. They think that DEI is just making sure that we're keeping up with the goals of affirmative action. And therefore, they will not be disabused by the Christopher Rufros of the world right. from supporting DEI. Exactly. But what I meant is DEI has taken a hit uh, in uh, the uh, public discourse and the kind of underlying support for the politics of racial equity uh, in that, I mean, uh, is it Elon Musk who tweeted something recently about airline pilots and a major airline having a diversity program and it, it has become therefore at the fringe, this is at the fringe of the Overton window of what you can say, possible to say, I don't know about getting on an airplane if a black guy's sitting in the pilot seat. Yeah, I saw Because, that. you know, th- this kind of thing. Uh, or 
uh, the language that says that the whole uh, uh, diversity mania in academia that led to Claudine Gay exposed as now a uh, I almost said academic fraud. That's too strong. It That's is. too strong. But nevertheless, com- seriously discredited. Mm-hmm. Okay? The minutes. Uh, and, and this is the fruit of a tree that has its roots planted in, uh, you know, not, not firm ground, in rotten ground, really. I mean, it's anti-meritocratic. Uh, it's obsessed about the, the kind of latter day, as it were, woke uh, uh, interest. I mean, you say diversity. I mean, diversity is not a bad thing in a university. Diversity is a wonderful thing. People with different languages studying different periods of human history, interested in all kinds of uh, profound questions that have been, you know, the subject of human reflection for millennia. Uh, that's diverse. That's that's very very diverse. But that's not what they mean, as you pointed out. You know, et cetera. But but that all these bureaucrats who are counting the beans and holding the hands, they are measuring the extent to which the university is meant to be representative of some demographic breakdown in the population. There's so many ways you could break the population down, but you do it in the bean counting way of looking at their skin color and deciding what box they belong in. Um, and uh, they are holding the hands of the students. They are cultivating in them a sense of identity that's based on f- flimsy and insubstantial human differentiation. You know, we were born on different continents. My God, it's a global civilization. This is the 21st century. So that, that, that idea, uh, the uh, university has to be the institutional conveyor belt of a certain mentality of diversity, equity, and inclusion of woke racial justice sensibility uh, and, and whatnot. That's under attack. The, the deal, decolonize the curriculum thing is under attack because the war in Gaza and the exposure of people on the left of the, of the campus communities, faculty, and students as anti-colonialists and the identification of uh, the struggle that Israel has to preserve itself with some kind of colonial imposition, and then the right side of history has you having to be against that, that has taken a tremendous hit. The reason that these presidents of Harvard and Penn are no longer the presidents is because in a a congressional committee hearing, they couldn't simply articulate forcefully the spirit of one side of that conflict. They didn't know how to say anti-Semitism is uh, the uh, Holocaust against the Jews is an unacceptable idea that I would fall on my sword to prevent from being propagated in my institution. They didn't know how to say that. Uh, And they're gone. So a lot has been discredited, I'm saying, I'm arguing. I'm sorry to go on so long, John. Uh, But it seems to me this is a watershed moment. And it's not because of Christopher Rufo, although he's riding the wave. Well, I mean... The issue is among whom is this a big moment? I mean, for people, say, in the center and rightward, it has been a beautiful example of how affirmative action really goes. I'm a little worried that now we're using this ellipt- kind of this elliptical DEI term. It's about racial preferences. And you really do see how it really happens. There's a kind of how the sausage is made in that 
it turns out that this dark-skinned person had only written 11 real articles. You don't usually get to see it that clearly. But if we is people center and left, I'm not sure that any lesson is being conveyed because what a lot of people are thinking is, well, how many articles was she supposed to have written anyway? And yes, I even contributed to that in trying to illuminate that that's a perspective in this. But glad, honestly, I think, in my sense, from taking the temperature of people center and left to the extent that I can. Um, and that's been fitfully, because I don't teach on a faculty per se. I teach on a faculty of two people, me and one other linguist. But listening to people on campus, listening to people in various places, Claudine Gay's black face, black smiling face, is the decisive factor. And there is a general sense that what happened to her was a tragedy, colored, or colored, so to speak, by the fact that that wasn't supposed to happen to somebody who is black. And that does not make logical sense, but it's there. I'm going to take up, I've got 60 seconds. I want to tell a quick story, but the, to illustrate how this sort of thing goes. 30 years ago, I was at a little linguistics conference, and it was a conference about social issues. So it's a kind of a hip conference, not about the pointy-headed stuff. And OJ is recent, and there was one person who was invited, a black woman, black woman of a certain age who was invited, not a famous one, to speak about language and the OJ trial. Now, to tell you the truth, there was maybe one thing to say about language in the OJ trial, and that is if the glove don't fit, you must acquit, and why that had <laughs> on the black jury. And frankly, it's not a difficult point. You know, there were a lot of papers about that because everybody thought that was so wonderful the way Johnny Cochran used language a little bit to do his job, and he did his job very well. So this woman was giving this conference's version of that talk that you heard constantly for about two or three years at the time. Now, everybody comes and sits in the room. Everybody's waiting. The room is packed to listen to the insights of this person. Like 75 people, people are sitting on the floor. She's late. And you know, no one is late to their conference talk. You're supposed to be there on time. But she was after lunch and she's late. So we're all sitting there for about seven minutes. And then she comes, you know, running into the room. She's smiling. Everybody's so happy to see her. And remember, she's not a celebrity. Most of the people in the room had probably never even seen or heard of her, but what she's about, she's a black woman. She's going to talk about OJ. Yay! 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 It was so fake. I've never talked about that till now, but it's been so long. And it, most of these people in the room are white, and they thought it was their job to just be in love with this, frankly, unknown scholar saying something that everybody's heard before, just celebrating her black, black, blackness. That's how those same people today feel about Claudine Gay. She's got the brown skin. She's got the funky glasses. She's got the big smile. She's a woman on top of that. And she can do no wrong. I don't think that anything has changed among people center and leftward or just people who are in the middle, maybe. People aren't seeing her as human. They see her as a symbol. Do you know who the first Jewish president of Harvard University was? Uh, Rudenstein or Bach? I don't, no, I don't think either of them is Jewish. I think it was Lawrence Summers. You sure? Hmm. We could look Nobody it up. Nobody talked about that. But okay, yeah. Correct or me if I'm wrong, uh, but in any case, I'm inviting a contrast. So this, you just gave a, a statement about what uh, President Claudine Gay, former president, 
represented in the minds of many people in her in virtue of her blackness. And we know how this story has ended. She has stepped down after a very brief period of time amidst um, reputation destroying uh, criticism of her academic standing. Uh, so Lawrence Summers also stepped down after a while. I mean, he certainly lasted more than six months, but he didn't uh, run his course there. Uh, and uh, why? Well, I, I'm not sure I know exactly why, and uh, I'm not going to pretend to the expertise on the matter, but uh, as I recall, uh, there was votes of no confidence uh, within the faculty that made his situation untenable, and why did the faculty turn on him? I'm imagining it was in part because of the controversy around some remarks that he made at a conference on women's underrepresentation in the STEM disciplines at, that uh, was controversial. I won't re replay that. Do you not want to? Uh, well, no, I mean, I, I don't, we could take time and replay it. If you want to replay it, we can replay it. He made some remarks about people uh, listening the distribution to, of innate ability. Yeah. The distribution of innate abilities having different thickness of the tails, roughly the same mean, but for men, thicker tails, which means as a probabilistic matter, if you're selecting far into the right tail of a distribution on this trait, the trait being the aptitude for doing uh, math and physics and engineering, and you're looking for people who are way, way out in the right tail, they're going to be many relatively more men than women if on the, on the hypothesis that the tails were thicker for men. He said this could be true. He didn't say it was true. He said it was a hypothesis worth entertaining, and that was found to be unacceptable. That was the spirit of a university to be able to explore any question, right? Yeah. Well, I would say, I would say so. I mean, I don't want to get bogged down in talking about the Larry Summers. I was trying to get to a different point, and the point was about the reputational consequences for the group. This is black people. You just got through characterizing it. Oh, she's black. She's black. Are, are, what is that? Is that standing? Is that honor? Is that achievement? Is that excellence? Is, is that equality? Is that penetrating the citadel? Or is it being patronized? Is it being made into a client? Is it being treated like a child? And I wanted to contrast that with the, what I understand to be the first Jewish president of uh, Harvard University who was uh, unsuccessful in his tenure um, in terms of what it was grounded on. Was it, was it grounded on solid ground? It, I mean, it's a university. It's supposed to be about excellence. It's supposed to be an intellectual enterprise in, in the first instance. And I want to say, uh, so uh, Robert Kuttner, the critic, uh, American Prospect, I think that's the name of the journal that he the and journal? Rice yeah. Yeah. found it said Summers was just as unqualified as uh, Claudine Gay because he's a neoliberal in terms of economic policy, because he advised badly during the financial crisis, because he supports the bankers, because he's got a retrograde theory of economics. What would I rather be the case? Somebody questions my disqualification because I'm a major league player articulating at a, the highest level of human achievement the uh, values and uh, principles of a of way of understanding the world. Uh, or that I'd be called disqualified because my resume is paper thin. I, you mentioned, I'm going to stop. I know I'm going on, John. 
in, in your in your in your plagiarism thing, you mentioned uh, Neri Oxman, the wife of Bill Ackman, the mm-hmm. financier, a Harvard alum, who's been making a big stink about stuff at Harvard, and you know it was a big critic of President Gay, and uh, she was accused. Neri Oxman uh, was accused of uh, lifting uh, of boilerplate plagiarism in her in her thesis. And I said, let's compare these two cases, boilerplate plagiarism and boilerplate plagiarism. But people going around saying, see there, Ackman's wife has a plagiarism. Let's just compare. So I went and I pulled down her CV. <laughs> and it is stunningly impressive in terms of the intellectual achievements, patents, scores of articles, awards, research. I mean, she's a major global player in her field. For real. Yeah. For real. Now, people unwittingly think that, aha, I got a gotcha. You see there, Ackman's wife is a plagiarist too. And I go and I take a look and I can't help but escape. No, no. Ackman's wife is actually one of the top dozen people in her field on the planet. And Claudine Gay is a non-entity as far as being a person producing research of consequence for understanding human society and experience. And you think, you think it's a tie? You, you think it's a trump card? You think it's the same thing? Well, see, this is why we need to be very explicit about the difference between boilerplate and real plagiarism, so that, frankly, you don't pretend that Oxman's career is invalidated by those minor torts near the beginning. And I would like to interject that the difference in degree and the difference in CV, curriculum vitae, acknowledged. Ackman looks absurd. And I want to make sure that I'm on the record saying this. For him to be jumping all over Claudine Gay about the boilerplate, and then two seconds later, when it's discovered about his wife, saying all the sorts of things that I was saying in my piece, before I wrote my piece, but suddenly... Oh, and much more elaborate. Excuse me for interrupting, but he's much more elaborate. He gets down into statistical counts of how many paragraphs and how many sentences and his minutia of trying to defend, you know, what probably is not defensible, but is also not that big of a deal. But It isn't, but the principle of the thing, really, (laughs) Ackman really looks awful. And I hope that he realizes how hopelessly fake and contingent that whole defense looks. I thought he was brilliant. I didn't completely agree with his intentions, but I thought he was brilliant. He's in, he's applying his brilliance there to a nonsense, hopeless argument that I really thought someone like him would know better than to try. He, like Claudine Gay, should have fallen on his sword and said, okay, whoops, got me, sorry. Can he not do that? That makes him a smaller person. Just want to get that in. However, I agree All with right. what you're saying, basically. Ugh. All right. Uh, uh, enough you know, of that. Glenn, I think they don't think we're smart, ultimately. Who, who are we, black people or me and you? Black, black. <laughs> <laughs> but black people in general. I think part of the reason that they think that Claudine Gay's small resume doesn't matter is because they figure, well, for them, that's pretty damn good. I honestly think that that's what they all think. And I think that, unfortunately, a lot of us have taken in the same thing. I think a lot of black people think, well, for us, that's pretty good. And I think it goes into something like, that isn't what we do. I think most people feel it as a kind of a cultural thing. 
you write a few papers to show that you can jump through the hoops, but then you become a dean so that you can foster diversity, et cetera. But really, there's a fine line between that. And we just aren't the, the, the most able linear thinkers. And I think a lot of good white people have just given up on us in that way. And I think that colors a lot of this, too. It's a sad thing. It's the sort of thing that last time we talked, I was saying that sometimes I just want to stay in my house. I think that is, that, that, that's part of it. Just saying. Don't you get Did that you feeling? See, yeah, uh, yeah, I do. I was going to ask whether you saw in the comments how people responded to your um, uh, wistful, uh, uh, you know, pursuit of solic- solitude and, and bliss in, in your ha- in your hobbies and in your in the world that you create for yourself and your oh, music. What did they say? Huh. And, well, yeah, they said, uh, yeah, John, I can identify with that. Or, you know, they, they, they liked it. They liked the idea of you. And they say, oh, me too. During the pandemic, I was going out less. And I actually don't go out as much anymore at all right now. And I understand when not to have to deal with the bullshit. But, you know, which was kind of, you know, I can't remember the specific trigger, but it was something on a race type question where you would be in the minority of the consensus opinion that people would expect you to have a certain, you know, I don't want to live next door to a cop. Yeah, that one. That's that was it. That was yeah. It. <laughs> and you just said, I'm tired. I'm tired of that. I'm retreating to my dinosaurs and you know, my piano. <laughs> <laughs> and the sad thing is that I meant it. And there really are a great many dinosaurs. <laughs> and I like them. So yeah, yeah, it's just I, all- I, I think what people like is that you're a full, whole, well-rounded person and uh, that while you have staked out this ground on the race questions, uh, it doesn't define you. It doesn't. <laughs> it really doesn't. But it kind of defines me. My memoir, which is coming out in May, everybody, you can check it out in the notes on this post, uh, is uh, subtitled Confessions of a Black Conservative. I mean, you know. It's a page turner, folks. Thanks, John. But I and wanted to ask you. I, it really is. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, you say the sweetest things. I want to ask you what you think about that black conservative part. Do, do you agree uh, that I'm a black conservative? We're so closely associated as we are here at the Glenn Show as a conversation partners that you might be tainted by your affiliation with, you know, I, and, you know, they, when they, uh, mention the list of black conservatives, sometimes I see your name next to mine, and I wonder how that makes you feel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's what, a, what you're thinking about? Sorry. There's a part of me that when you are explicit about being a conservative, it makes me itch a little bit because I think of you as just you. I think of you as somebody who uses logic. That didn't come out right, but I'm jet lagged, but I think of you as just reasoning, not being part of some group. And you're not part of some group. One of the essence of the view is that you don't like being part of a group. But if you call yourself a conservative, then it means that you and Shelby Steele and Tom Sowell and Walter Williams and Armstrong Williams are all hanging out in a room thinking the same things with Clarence Thomas. And I just... And Larry Elder. And Larry Larry Elder. (laughs) (laughs) He's an interesting trajectory, but that is not the way I think of you. And yet I know I make those lists, but to tell you the truth, 
back in the day, 20 years ago, I was on the list and everybody seemed to think I was Clarence Thomas's nephew or something like that. Nowadays, there is that list of quote unquote black conservatives, but it's generally said that it's not really conservatives. It's just people who don't think like Ta-Nehisi Coates, Ibram Kendi, and Nicole Hannah-Jones. I think people are beginning to understand that you can come from many places and that if anything, the views of those three people and what they represent, I don't think those are thought of as as default among as many people as of a black view as they used to be. I think that um, what's happening to my verbs, it's because I just got off the plane, but it's that. I think that there's a progress being made, partly because of the nature of the internet and maybe iPhones and our show and how easy it is for things to get around. So I don't mind being on that list because I don't think people mean by it what they used to. Everybody knows I vote Democratic, or if they don't, they're not paying attention. Everybody knows I have all sorts of views. They, I'm just heterodox. There's a heterodox list. I don't mind that. Okay, I have an analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see three dimensions of quote-unquote black conservatism. One of them is political economy. So you're for free markets and small government and you're distrustful of welfare. Uh, Another is cultural. So you're religious, your traditional values, you're, you know, not with the ultra postmodern new age uh, sensibilities around uh, basic issues. And then the third is just heterodoxy from the consensus opinion about whatever. So, I mean, you don't like affirmative action or you think reparations is a bad move or you're tired of all the belly aching and, uh, you know, kind of victim mongering and stuff like that as a black person. And you speak out against that, you, which is, I think you, I think you are not a political economic conservative. You are not a cultural conservative. No, you're, you're, you're much more of a kind of centrist Democrat on the cultural issues. And you're much more of a kind of maybe moderately right of center Democrat on the political economy issues. But on the, uh, yeah. on the Ta-Nehisi Coates's or Ibram X. Kendi's dreadlocks <laughs> or the Nicole Hannah-Jones persona, Ida Bay Wells, you know, yeah. kind of a persona, what she embodies and what she represents on, on behalf of articulating uh, African-Americans uh, on uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates's, uh, you know, you, back in the day when he was ascendant, uh, a lot of it was stylistic. A, a, a lot of it was, you know, arrogating to himself something about speaking for black people that you took exception to. Uh, but uh, I, I, I don't know how much you guys differ on uh, social policy questions and whatnot. I don't know. I'm characterizing you. You might think I'm not doing it accurately. No, you you are. I mean, I am in that third category and therefore think that the role and significance of racism is vastly exaggerated. Many people think of that as a conservative position, but it has nothing to do with wanting to conserve anything, racism in the past, if we're going to think about it that way. It's just that, and not to drag these people's name through the mud, but it's illustrative because they're very active on Twitter. Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones and Ibram X. Kendi, their, their lesson from Claudine Gay is it was racism, which I think is extremely oversimplifying it. And I think many people left of center would say that too, but both of them firmly believe that and continue to tweet about it. And I don't think we need to have any doubt that Tana Hasi Coates's view would be the same if he were still on that platform. If somebody like me says no, and that's considered a radical statement to say that no, racism was not the reason that she got knocked down. And racism is vastly exaggerated as a reason why there are disparities between white and black people today. 
that's considered a radical thing. And there's a shorthand of calling that conservative. But I think that the language and the reality have a very um, approximate fit at this point. So I'm I'm moved to invoke my Larry Summers analogy again and wonder about calling that anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and how absurd that'll sound and how uh, inept it would be for an advocate of Jewish interest to make an argument in those wor- in those terms. That it was because it, it, it would just be ridiculous. It, yeah. it would be laughed out of court in a minute, and it would be shown to be a certain kind of. <laughs> you know, identity mongering. Oh, everything's anti-Semitism now, you know, kind of thing like that. But this is that. <laughs> oh, everything is racism now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's ra- rather, the, and of course, for these people, blackness is different. You know, everybody is. But we don't have the wisdom to forbear. We don't have the sense of self to say, no, I won't present myself prostrate to the nation as a monger of my own victimization. Everything's racism, including a wealthy princess of a sky, scion of a, a elite family with a pedigree that, you know, is as purely uh, selective as it could possibly be, falling flat on her face in the biggest academic job in the country. But remember that she, we have to talk. And we're calling it racism. We don't take any responsibility. We don't, you know, I mean, and we think people are going to buy it. And all they're going to do is uh, raise their eyebrow. Glenn, and, and, <laughs> yeah, you, and I, you and I have been in certain settings. Remember that time we were at Skip Gates's house having dinner, and it was you, me, Larry Summers, Skip, Orlando Patterson, uh, Marceliana Morgan, and some other people, and we were all having dinner. Remember that? This is yeah. like 1952. Well, at that... <laughs> at that no, you were out there giving some lecture, weren't you? Was that what that was? It was when I gave the whatchamacallits. The, the, yeah, the, the, the boys. Three. That's right. Yeah. yeah, that's this is so. I just different. remember you playing the piano and you know whatnot. I did do that. I forgot about that. Yeah, it was like nice. Oh, two. That's right. And in that same setting, I'm sure Claudine Gay has been in that same setting. You're sitting there, you're drinking the wine, and you know the the, the hired caterers who bring out the appetizers and stuff. I'm quite sure, quite sure that she has various stories she tells of the racism that she's undergone, even as the scion of wealthy Haitian immigrants because of her dark skin. And so she has stories about being discriminated against at Stanford, I'm sure, because it was very fashionable among black undergraduates at exactly the time she was there to talk about that sort of thing. And I'm sure she talks about how her dark skin has gotten her discriminated against even by some black people. I'm guessing, but You've been around after a while. You get to know types. Somebody could type me too. But remember, she thinks of herself as a victim of racism. She's got all sorts of anecdotes. And so the fact that she comes from rich Asians doesn't matter. It's all about our skin color and all of that bigotry that we all suffer as the result of it. And white people buy completely into that exaggerated mythology, which Tyler Austin Harper has so perfectly skewered in a couple of his pieces. And not to say that he doesn't understand his racism, but people have taken it too far. So, yeah, frankly, remember that she thinks of herself as a victim of racism and that this would be just one more example. She's a late 20th century educated black person. That's what one thinks. So here we are. I'm remembering this piece by Adolph Reed from, I don't know, The Nation Your or friend Adolf, uh, The Village yeah. Voice. He's not my friend. <laughs> Uh, he's a political scientist and a Marxist and uh, emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania and uh, a thoughtful guy. 
Anyway, he has it. What are the drums saying? What are the drums saying? That's in the title of the piece. And it's a critique of Henry Louis Gates Jr. and Cornel West. What they as, do? Well, they were in. So the title is meant to be ironic. It's meant to be the black uh, native who is being asked by the white safari uh, captain when he hears the drums beating off in the bush. What are they saying? What are they saying? Because the drums are beating. That means the natives are communicating with each other. You need an interlocutor. You need, you, you need a translator. You need somebody who can tell you what the drums are saying, who can tell you, who can put you in touch with the temper of the native. <laughs> now, that person is not uh, going to be a representative selection from the native population. That person is going to be an elite, refined uh, you know, person who has been cultivated to this uh, to this position, but they're an interlocutor. It, it, it's a way of doing race in the academy that I think he was trying to uh, satirize mm-hmm. uh, in in that uh, doing doing race for the white establishment to feel that they have an adequate, uh, you know. Uh, presentation of the of the racial sensibility but it's not really critical it, it, this is me and trying to interpret um you know, they were celebrity blacks mm-hmm. you know and that's why but, yeah we can hear in some quarters right because we're not gonna do it i don't know if this is characteristic of professor slash former president claudine gay at harvard though i don't either I really don't. I'm taking a guess about what she would say about her racial experience. But it's why, for example, it can be difficult to get a real discussion going over the difference between Black people with ancestry and slavery, such as you and me, and people like her. One might say, one might expect that people like her would have a completely different take on American life than people like you and me. But the immediate smackdown response is, all of us suffer racism all the time. And so that unites us all as black people, whether our parents are from Nigeria, Haiti, or Cleveland. I'm well, not, we know, yeah. I'm not sure I really believe that. I really do think that the people from Haiti and Nigeria, or the parents are from Haiti and Nigeria, and how much they excel actually shows that we should be fascinated with why they excel. Actually, Wilfred Riley was another one of these heterodox black thinkers. And I think he deserves more attention than he gets. And he seems to spend his entire life on Twitter and he's brilliant at it. Actually showed the other day on Twitter, I'm revealing how much time I spend working on it, but I can't help it. He actually showed a chart. He said that somebody had dared somebody to show um, a test of IQ where black people came out ahead. And apparently they do in England. And it's because the black people there are immigrants, mostly recent immigrants. And that means that the cultural factor that holds back black Americans on those tests, I've always thought it was cultural, but I don't have the expertise to put my finger on it, doesn't operate on them. They are higher IQ'd than the whites over there. Yeah, I'd be very careful. I'd be very careful. Because you've got all kinds of selectivity going on. I mean, these are people who are the descendants of immigrants to the country. They're not a random draw on the on the population and they may be different, uh, not just in terms of their culture or their genes, but, uh, in terms of what their, uh, 
you know, situation was in the mother country before they elected to migrate in the first place. Yeah, you know, so I, I just be careful. Well, that one study, you don't come to a conclusion like this based on one study. It's come suggestive yeah. and it gets amalgamated into literature. So I, I do admire Will Riley, though. I know him and, and admire him. And I think he might even call himself a conservative, for all I know. I don't know if he does. Uh, but he is thoughtful. I don't follow him as closely on Twitter, although I do follow him. But I don't spend as much time on Twitter as you do. You have to learn what people think on the other side. And I, did notice, I did notice that Ibram X. Kendi was outspoken on Twitter about the Claudine Gay situation. And I thought, he's, uh, he's undeterred. He, he has a life. Uh, outside of uh, the mainstream media's, uh, you know, kind of characterization of him as a failed academic entrepreneur who was kind of an empty suit. And everybody's agreeing with me and you that even Max Kendi was uh, a, a lot much to do about nothing. But he's undeterred out there in the Twitter sphere because he has uh, he has a following and people are giving him affirmation. Well, you know, it's another sign of the times. It's easy to miss signs of change is that, I mean, I don't think that he's fallen. I don't think that what happened a few months ago destroyed his reputation completely. I think that he had a stumble. But what's important is that when he goes on those Twitter thread rants and, you know, think what you will of them, notice that he can't write them anywhere official. So, for example, you don't see that appearing in The Atlantic, where he writes for. You don't see it anywhere else. In other words, the mainstream media is not interested in that kind of rant. He has to put it on Twitter. That's a sign of the times because 10 years ago, he would have been writing that in The Nation or he would have been, he would have been writing that in The Times. Things are shifting. That, kind, right. of, that kind of third-rate African-American studies view that, that he puts out there, he can put that on his Twitter thread, but it doesn't wind up in cold, hard print. That's significant. The, t- the discussion is shifting, I think. Or do you think I'm being a Pollyanna in that? No, I think maybe it's too early to tell. You say uh, that his reputation hasn't taken that much of a hit, uh, but it has taken a hit. I think uh, so, yeah. And I don't know if that influences how editors decide about what they want to print from him uh, or not. I just uh, noticed that there's a major difference between his Twitter presence and what he's allowed to actually write, a larger gulf than there is in many people. And it, it, it says something. Okay, so here's what I find really ironic. Uh, there was a controversy at Harvard about Roland Fryer, and he got suspended under some Title IX judgment over which Claudine Gay presided. He's still there, she's out. As president of the university, she still has her faculty position and her $900,000 a year salary. Uh, Roland is back from his suspension and he's flourishing uh, and is still Roland Fryer, which is one of the leading economists of his generation. He's going to be fine starting companies, doing research, teaching. He'll be fine. That I find to be ironic. At the University of Pennsylvania, Liz McGill and Amy Wax are colleagues in the same faculty at the law school. Uh, McGill ascended to presidency of the university, but it had to step down amidst uh, dissatisfaction with her handling of her responsibilities. Uh, Amy Wax is under uh, indictment, uh, quote unquote, uh, from the faculty senate's uh, disciplinary uh, procedures for uh, comments that she's made in public that people have found to be uh, 
uh, unacceptable. They found them to be racist. Uh, uh, they found them to be uh, uh, anti-Asian immigration and things of this kind. And she's said to have conducted herself in a way that makes her fit for disqualification, although she's fighting it. And I don't know what the ultimate, uh, I think it's still yet to be determined exactly whether her uh, uh, behavior is going to be sanctioned by the, by the university in this way. But so as I, as I speak now, she's still standing. Amy Wax is still standing. Liz McGill is gone. Roland Fryer is standing and flourishing. Claudine Gay is gone. <laughs> what do we make of that? <laughs> I think that <laughs> that is a really neat pattern, but I think that um, I am going to call it coincidence until we see maybe a third and a fourth. But you know, something about Amy Wax, though, I've made my views about her statements on this show clear. But you know, to be honest with myself, I have to say this. The things that she's on record as saying, there's like a collection of about 23 statements, yeah. are so egregious that it almost reminds me of this, there ought to be a name for it, but I'm not good at coming up with names for things. But the fact that whenever you hear about some terrible cop killing of a black man by a white cop, the story is never what we're initially told. Like often it's just almost too good to be true that somebody did X, Y, or Z. Why would anybody be that much of a barbarian? I wonder with the Amy statements, because apparently, from what I've heard, she claims that she didn't say those things or they were taken out of context. Are people by chance, I'm just wondering if this is what it's going to come down to, have people by chance been making things up or radically taking things out of context in order to take her down because they've decided that she's a bad person. And I genuinely don't know, but those statements that she made, even if she is a, a rather colorful and take no prisoners kind of person in terms of the things that she'll say out in the open, did she really say those things in front of students? Some of those things. And I just wonder, I, I now am leaving a little bit of sunlight in that maybe this stuff is not what we've initially been told. I'm just just wondering. I, I don't think Amy's that bad. I don't think she's nearly as bad as she's made out to be. They Actually, I think it's Heterodox Academy or FAIR. One of them had... Fire, uh, right? FIRE, it's FIRE, Foundation yeah. for Individual Rights and Education, had a uh, video uh, kind of a conference uh, where Amy presented her defense and people commented and there were questions taken from the audience. And she basically denies I didn't do it. I mean, they say I did said this to a student. I mean, it's taken out of context or I didn't say it or, and I have no recollection of having said it. It was in 2012 or something or whatever. Uh, I mean, she did say that she thought some uh, of her classes, she'd very seldom seen a black student uh, in the top part of the class. That was her experience. Yeah, and that, that was yeah. said to be, she did say she thought that, uh, Asian immigration was not entirely hopeful to the country. I took strong issue with it. She said that in uh, context of discussions that we had at, at the Glenn Show. Um, she she is of the belief that uh, traditional values circa the 1950s are a stronger foundation for social flourishing uh, in a society than the latter-day values of uh, the liberated uh, uh, 21st century that we live in. And, you know, she's entitled to her opinion about that. She has her reasons for saying it, you don't have to agree with them, but uh, it is a position that could, I suppose, be argued. Um, and uh, she's, she's, you know, a conservative in terms of race and law enforcement. She's a conservative in terms of uh, racial preferences. She's against them 
uh, and uh, against the defunding the police and that kind of stuff. She's a racial realist. I think this is where, <laughs> you know, it, it certainly gets your attention. So she she criticizes Charles Murray from the right. She and, she and I discussed Charles Murray's book, uh, Human Diversity, which is a comprehensive tome where he surveys the evidence on differences in human populations defined by racial ancestry, by gender. That's uh, a book. Yeah. And, yeah. It, I mean, it's a big book. It's it's a, you know, it's what Charles has chosen to spend his time doing. And he does uh, Yoma's effort at. Uh, oh, I'm thinking that I've got the wrong book in mind. Anyway, anyway, I'm just trying to say. One, but I read the shorter one. Anyway, go ahead. Amy is critical of him in part because he doesn't want to acknowledge more forcefully the inherent racial differences in populations and capacities for intellectual work. And Charles says he's uh, resolutely agnostic about the nurture-nature question. He says he doesn't think the evidence is sufficient to have a very strong view, although he certainly thinks both are involved. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, But uh, Amy is out there uh, kind of saying, you know, if we don't own up to the reality of the fact that the races are different, and we keep thinking we can fix the inequality problem through one or another social scheme, uh, we're going to be chasing our tails forever. Uh, I hope I don't do injustice to her. I'm reporting what I understand to be her position. And, you know, that's, that's, very, con- that's very controversial. Uh, and, I, and I almost want to say to uh, Amy or anybody who takes that position, the position being the races are so different in their intrinsic endowments that uh, inequality is inevitable. And what's all this fuss about racial inequality? Um, I, I want to say to them, I don't think the evidence is anywhere close to supporting uh, that deterministic view. I think the scope for uh, the revision of, of, of people's uh, uh, behaviors that would lead to uh, differences in performance. I'm talking about what happens in families. I'm talking about what happens in schools. I'm talking about uh, what happens in the culture uh, is hard to know. I mean, I think it's in some sense unlimited. And and I think the political consequences of taking this, uh, the, this uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm, 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 the word is escaping me now, but this kind of, I give up on the possibility of change. I said this to Charles when I interviewed Charles Murray. I said, don't try to tell me that uh, Black people are not capable of rising to the challenge of the modern world. Don't, don't tell me that. Uh, that that's uh, uh, something that I refuse to accept. Uh, and, and moreover, you don't have a scientific grounding for saying it. So, you know, I, 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 wanna, I want to develop the capacities. I say people have the intrinsic endowment it's a question of developing their capacities. I see no reason not to take that view. I just want to say that I have been particularly interested in the anecdotal Amy Wax statements. Does she toss off things in front of a class such as that being, you know, classic American culture is is underrated? <laughs> or making a comment about the nature of Asian names or saying something to a black female student that implies that she's one of a very few who are as good as she is among people of her color. Did those things actually happen? Maybe they did, but I wasn't there. And sometimes I start to wonder, given how often the wool is pulled over our eyes. And with Amy, I would have to say this, and I may be coming from a point of naivete because my 
command of her literature is not comprehensive. But then again, her literature is, is processable. We're not talking about 30 years of something she's written every month. Amy is somebody who goes for quality over quantity. I am not aware of where she said, if we can't talk about these things, then it means that A, B, and C. What I know of her saying is we've got to be able to acknowledge these clear differences in mental candle power. I, maybe I'm wrong on this, and please tell me, does she say, and therefore, we need to get rid of welfare, we need to get rid of these government programs, we need to get rid of racial preferences for good, etc.? My sense has always been that she, even she's a little hesitant about that. She basically just says, we must be able to talk about it. And then if you ask know about to what end, yeah. and you don't get an answer, which I no, find- I don't, know about, I don't know about welfare, although I think she would be suspicious. I mean, she wants a traditional family to come back and, you know, she, she's- uh, but I'm I'm pretty sure about affirmative action that her opposition is implacable. Uh, she thinks it's a, and I am inclined largely to agree with her. It's a corruption of the institutions, and she thinks these bureaucrats who administer this uh, DEI uh, uh, mandate, um, you know, they're full of second-rate people and and uh, misguided people who are basically racist and anti-Semites. Um, so I, you know. What she said to a student about whether or not uh, they got a double IV because they're black, I, I don't know. She has an answer to that charge. I can't recite it chapter and verse, but she thinks she's taken out of context or denies having said it. Uh, but could she have made a remark casually in a class that uh, some people found offensive? Of course. I mean, <laughs> in, in fact, I think it's likely. I can I can testify from my own. Let me tell you just just and I'll finish. Health preserving. I'm, I'm at I'm at the Penn Law School giving a lecture and against mass incarceration, saying there are too many blacks in prison. First question I get from the audience is from Professor Amy Wax. I don't know her at this time. This is before I'm doing the Glenn Show, and she says, or before I'm doing it with her, and she says, "No, I actually think that there are too few blacks in prison." Full stop. What year? I mean, she she throws down the gun. It was like twenty. It was the year I visited Columbia. 2010, like, 2011. Okay, so it's so. probably December 2010. At a time when she had reason to believe that she was being recorded, she stood up and said that. It was a room full of people. It was a faculty seminar. Uh, you know, and I had, and I was on a anti-incarceration shtick. I had, me and Bruce Western, we had all these studies going at the National Academy of Arts and Sci of, of Sciences and at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and stuff like that. I had given the Tanner Lectures at Stanford. I was going around the world talking about the uh, horrors of America's over-incarceration regime, and they invite me in to do that. I'm a black guy, said there are too many blacks in prison. She said, no, they're too few. Now, if I'm a kid sitting in the classroom and I raise my hand and I say, I think there are too many black people, how do you comfort And she says, actually, they're too few. I would be offended. Th th that would be a racist act to me. I don't think she'd do that in a classroom full of law students. I think there's a certain self-preservation that's inherent to all human beings. In front of a bunch of grown-ups, okay. But in front of a bunch of 22-year-olds, who would do that? Now, if she has done it, then I maintain that I am really, really dismayed that she would throw fire. What's the expression? I'm throwing <laughs> gasoline on the fire like that, given that Black students already come into higher learning being taught that if they're feeling a little insecure, they can look to racism as the reason. I'm very disappointed that she would do that. But 
I have a hard time imagining her as somebody sane and brilliant saying things like, well, too many Wongs in this class or something well, like that. Well, no, she, I, you know, I agree with you about that. But I, I actually want to defend her on the uh, too few Blacks statement in the sense that what was her reasoning? Her reasoning was they're committing the crimes. And actually, if you look at the proportion we're in prison per, per crime committed, it's not too many, it's too few, meaning it's under the you know, population. Uh, and to which I should have an answer. If, if I'm, you know, a, a good advocate of my position, uh, and I would have had an answer, and I'm not going to rehearse the answer, but I mean, basically, it's that if these were white people who were suffering under the same depredations of uh, the prison regime, uh, there would be a different attitude about it. Uh, it. This is a reflection of a devaluation of Black life that you uh, allow for uh, balancing the cultural budget of the country on the backs of the people who are the least advantaged. Words to that effect. Uh, and a student could likewise be challenged to come up with arguments. And there's something about the authoritative relationship between the professor and the student that, that I think obliges the professor to be more empathetic and, and maybe cushion, but not to not challenge, not to not challenge. But as a smackdown, now, they're not too many, they're too few. You know, I dare you to say anything about it kind of thing. That's, that's an abusive uh, uh, yes. reaction, mm-hmm. you know. Anyway, John, my clock says an hour, more or less. Won't call it quits. I think we have done our job for today. Uh, We've created enough uh, uh, turmoil out there in the blogosphere. We'll see what happens. Thanks for joining me, John. Take care. As always, thank you, Glenn.